Welcome to Trail and Error, a look at the trail running world from the podium to the pack with your hosts Jay Grady and Tristan Stevenson. We decided to start our own trail running podcast to talk to the people we find interesting in the trail and ultra running world, to find out their highs and lows, their momentous successes and their abject failures, and to perhaps give us all a little bit of inspiration to take on some adventures and challenges of our own. We'll be speaking to runners and athletes, race directors and coaches, sports nutritionists and doctors to get the best out of our own running and hopefully yours too. We hope you enjoy the podcast and if you do, please hit like and subscribe via all the normal podcast feeds. But for now, let's get on with the show. Okay, welcome to another edition of Trail and Error. Uh, This week, myself and Tris are joined by Ian Corliss. Ian, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Glad to be here. Hi, Ian. Welcome. Um, Great to have you on board. I've got to tell you something funny, actually. Jay and I were just messaging um, before we started recording, and um, he revealed, divulged uh, to me that your podcast, we'll we'll have to get into your many talents and all the things you do in a minute, but your podcast was the first podcast he ever listened to, like as in not the first running podcast, but the first podcast. That's true. Yeah, well, yeah, my, my podcast has been around for quite a long time. It seems as though everybody has a podcast at the moment. Um, but I started mine, well, the foundations for it was 2010, and then it went live late 2011. So, yeah, yeah it's it's coming up for 11 years, which is, uh, it's a which long is pretty run. good for a podcast. It yeah, is, yeah. It is a long time. Yeah. Also, that means you've sort of um, traversed the kind of podcast dark era or dark ages because – there was that initial kind of rush of podcasts back in the sort of mid to late noughties, yeah. um, where, which you're, I guess the origin story of yours fits into. And then for me, it seemed like everyone kind of was like, eh, podcasts, not so much for the sort of early part of the teenies. And then there's obviously been just a huge resurgence in it in the last three, four, five years, and especially over the last two years when everyone's been kind of shut indoors on their own. <laughs> yeah, C- COVID did wonders for podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was at home and thinking, what can I do? Oh, I know, I'll do a podcast. And so, <laughs> so suddenly everybody has got one. Um, I, I think I think the thing is, is pod- people do podcasts for different reasons. So some people actually use it like an audio blog and are actually not really too worried whether anybody's listening listening to it. it, it it's more mm. of, of just a, a vocal reasoning for themselves and then they may get a following. Um, and, and so those podcasts can sort of go and disappear. Um, and then if you do a podcast like I was doing, which was very much at that trans- transition point when trail and ultra running was really, really taking off, my audience and still is, is probably very, very niche and small, but you can then be a very big person within a small world. And, and I think that is, that has been the longevity of, of my podcast is that, that it appeals to a very small niche, but that niche tend to listen and are loyal. So, so I think that's key. And, and trail running has grown so much in that time as well. You know, you were there in the kind of the origins of it becoming popular and, and it's just kept on growing. So your audience has grown as well or the potential yeah, I, audience size. Yeah. The, I think the audience, 
it, it most definitely peaked in that first three or four years, and then it, it's a case of those people get retained, and then people come and people go, and then I think what's happened in the last four or five years, and particularly maybe in the last two years, is that there's so many podcasts out there now, even in trail and ultra running, is that if you're a podcast fan, you tend to subscribe to all of them. <laughs> and and so, you know, I always decided very, very early on that my podcast was going to be long because I wanted people to listen to it while they were running. Mm. And I was told, you're crazy doing a three-hour, four-hour podcast. But actually, that was my USP, and it still is. People love to download my podcast and go out at the weekend and run for three or four hours and listen to the show. Um, which is whereas, perfect for the sport, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which is most of the other podcasts tend to be, and I think still are, one interview, which mm. is somewhere in the region of 30 minutes to, to one hour, which is great for commuting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what a lot of people do is, you know, if they, they're running to work or cycling to work or even in the car, they listen to a 30-minute, 40-minute, one-hour podcast. Um, but my USP was always go long. Um, mm. Yeah. But it, it never felt a three- or four-hour podcast, you know what I mean? It's, it's always been um... – like you say, you have multiple interviews in there and, and Carl has joined you, Carl Meltzer on, on many of them as well. And that's, so you've had that aspect of it. And what's always come through has been the logistical challenges. You know, many times we'll go into kind of your backstory and how much you travel and things like that. But the logistics of keeping your podcast going over a, a calendar year are, are quite large, you know. You yeah, yeah, and and it has failed recently. Um, you know, there's my podcast has, has faltered considerably in the last twelve months just because I've had so many different changes going on. You know, I've moved to from the UK to Norway. Mm -hmm. uh, the impact of of COVID gave me less travel time, but lots of other impact time, which which some of it was running, um, which, which was a great thing. Um, uh, but also the other thing was as well is that I, I used to always, you know, when something happened on a weekend, I would always try and get that person on the show, you know, whether it was Carl winning 100 or Jason Schlab or Killian or whoever it was. Whereas now what happens is there's so many other podcasts who are interviewing that person that I just didn't want to interview the same person as everybody else. And and I think maybe that's because I've been doing this for so long. I just didn't want to produce the same content. It, of course, it would be different, but it, in theory, it would be the same. Like when a movie gets released and the, the kind of A-list goes around doing all the same sort of chat show circuits, right? And it's like the same interview kind of rehashed. Uh, yeah, ten times, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've I've tried to to be a little bit more specific and do things that I not normally would have done recently, and that has just left some big gaps. Um, but I, I'm I'm sort of in the process now where I'm, I'm I'm restructuring how the podcast will work, and hopefully it will get back to being more consistent. Um, I hope. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast. Um, yeah, well, I I'll use the content on mine as well. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, you're welcome to it. Any way we can distribute it, you know, we hand out in the street on CDs if we have to. Um, <laughs> anyway, we can get rid of it. 
Well, I think we, we've made a, a conscious decision at times with certain guests not to pursue them in terms of getting them onto the show because of that exact reason where people are doing the rounds and, and there's only so many original things that they can say. And, and you know, yeah. you don't want to be one of many, do you? You do want to have that individuality yourself. Um, so we, we've, we're very much running the, the line of keeping um, very uh, localized stories to, to the region that we're in, in the UK, down in the Southwest, and also bringing in um, people from outside as well, but, but keeping the balance. So regionally, it has a draw so that people in Cornwall can recognize the people we're talking about and have met them and have run with them. And also bringing in, you know, international runners and, and international celebrities and, and people of note like yourself. So it's it's that's an interesting balance that we're trying to to walk, um, and it's working so far. Yeah. We think it, it, it all it all depends what you want to get out of the podcast as well. You know, when I started it, it was um, it was oh let's try this, and 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 it was primarily because I was helping Marathon Talk um, at the time, Tom Williams and. Um, Martin Yelling, and I was getting the ultra guests for the for the Marathon Talk podcast, and then we had a chat, and they said, you know, there's, there's probably room for a standalone ultra running podcast, and that's how it started, and and really for me it was just well, let's see how it goes, and then it was never really a business model, and and, and to to an extent it is still not a business model. Um, I don't monetize it in any way. I never wanted to have ad, have adverts or jingles because I just thought that nobody wants to listen to that, and I've still avoided that. Um, so it, it was more of a vehicle to promote the sport, and in the same way, it, it created awareness of what I was doing as a writer or a photographer. But the podcast was an addition to everything else, not the be-all and end-all. Mm. No, you gave it a lot of um, attention and work to, to to say it was in that kind of area as well. So it, you know, it it definitely worked, and and it introduced me to, oh crikey, to, to to worlds and runs and adventures and places that you never even think of, and all of a sudden your ex, your horizons are expanding so much, and you realise all these things are going on, and and you want to be part of it. So um, yeah, it, it, straight off the bat, I thank you for that. That was um, a, a good moment for me. Cool. Well, you probably won't be sitting here doing a podcast yourself if it wasn't for Ian in that case. Def- definitely. You are responsible. If this is terrible, Ian, it's all your fault. <laughs> this, is your you. this is your apprentice. This is your Blame me. Yeah. Blame me. Yeah. So from, from the kind of top to bottom, your, your resume Ian, is, is, is always interesting. And, and you, I would kind of put you into a couple of categories. You are, you're a coach. You're a photographer. Podcaster, which we talked about, which is Talk Ultra. If anybody hasn't checked out Talk Ultra, Get on there and, and subscribe. Uh, you're a runner, cyclist, author. Uh, the book Running Beyond is is on my shelf. It's a, a great way of seeing pictorially some of the great races out there in the world and as a, a forward by Killian as well. And um, uh, somebody who I've chatted to and is coming on the show hopefully at some point, Linda Doak, once, once described you as the crazy Englishman. Yes, yes. Uh, Linda and myself go back quite a long way. <laughs> she, she's also a photographer, isn't she? Um, Linda takes photos. I wouldn't, I don't think she calls herself a photographer. She's uh, very much a a coach, um, and, and quite, quite a profile on the South African run scene. Yeah. Um, so, but she, she, she certainly takes photos as part of what she does. Yeah. Yeah, I look at some of her work and it's always, again, inspiring stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's great to have you on. And, and if we can kind of, (sighs) 
I guess we've talked about how the podcast started, but how how did you really get into the world of ultra? Um, whew, it, so I, I've been a photographer for thirty odd years too lo- too long to be honest to to remember. Um, and I started as a commercial advertising photographer, so mainly working in a studio, photographing anything from from food to kids to washing machines to kitchens. Um, and and you know that was that was my career. And at the same time, I was cycling. And cycling originally started as a hobby to lose weight. Uh, and I, I am pretty much OCD in the sense that once I start something, I tend to go all in. And so within six months of cycling, I was racing. And then I moved up to elite level. And I was racing at elite level for quite a while. Um, and at the same time, I was coaching cyclists. And then there just came this point where trying to race at a high level cycling, even not pro, it was, you know, I guess, I guess you could call it semi-pro or, or, you know, sort of well below the ranks. It wasn't Tour de France level. Uh, I found that working 12 hours a day and trying to cycle, you know, 60, 70 miles a day, which is what I was doing was just, you know, I was just burning the candle at both ends. Mm. And uh, I decided that one of the things I had to give, and of course, cycling wasn't really making me any money. So I stopped and, uh, you know, literally from the day that I decided the next day I stopped and I pretty much sold my bikes and everybody thought, you're mental, you know, you've gone from being completely OCD to getting rid of the bikes. And and my response then was that is the only way I can stop. Yeah. If I have a bike in the room, I will go on it. So I have to stop. So I had about a year of just keeping fit, you know, a bit of a gym bunny, just doing anything. And then I was told by my ex-cycling friends and colleagues, hey, you said when you were 40, you were going to do an Ironman. I said, oh, yeah. Okay, so I, I entered a triathlon, um, which I won. And then- so you easily succumbed to peer pressure as well then. <laughs> exactly. So, 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 so that all I- sounds quite familiar, by the way. It's a little <laughs> yeah, bit too I mean, close yeah. to home. Everybody who who goes ultra running will relate <laughs> completely to the OCD nature. So I I entered London Triathlon and I I I won my age group and was pretty high ranked in in the category I was in. And of course, somebody said to me, "Hey, you can be quite good at this." And like there was nothing <laughs> worse to say to me. Like the I touch thought, paper. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I thought, yeah, maybe I could. So then I entered an Ironman, and of course, the stupidity was I stopped cycling because i didn't have the time and then i went training for three sports which <laughs> was even worse so i did ironman for a while um and then I, I remember standing on the start line of ironman austria and it was 2008 i think yeah 2008 and i wasn't frightened anymore of the distance i i knew that i would finish um, it was just going to be a case of what time did I finish? And and I was never doing Ironman to really, really chase times or win anything. I was doing it for the, for the fun and maybe the fear of it. So I did Ironman Austria and stopped. <laughs> it was, it was basically just like, like the cycling. And then the one thing that petrified me was running long. 
because there is never ever a guarantee when you run that that it will feel okay that it you will finish and that's basically the story of how I got into ultra running and and in 2008 I thought the perfect way to to do this is to run eight marathons in eight days and I I, I decided uh, I had this tagline eight in eight in 08 so it was eight marathons in eight days in 2008 and I got permission for London from London Marathon to finish my to run my eighth marathon in uh, London Marathon very cool so I ran the 187 miles of the Thames Path as as seven marathons, and then ran London Marathon as my eighth. Hmm. And and you know even even now looking back, that sort of feels feels quite funny because eight marathons in eight days these days is nothing. Hmm. You know everybody seems to be doing something stupid and crazy, but then it seemed as though that was quite quite unique and yeah. quite quite weird. And it was heavily influenced by Dean Canales, I have to say. Hmm. So that's how it started. It is incredible how the um, expectation of what is, um, you know, mad endurance has increased so much over the last, well, even, I mean, I've only been, I've been running for, I guess, most of my adult life on and off, but only running seriously for the last three years, four years. And even in that time, um, you know, I, th- I guess because of social media and the fact that everyone knows what everyone else is up to, there's always someone else pushing it another level or doing it longer or, you know, doing it harder or faster. Um, and so that that bar is just raised continually. And yeah, it's, you know, eight marathons in eight days is impressive, but doesn't sound that impressive in 2021, does it? No, 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 not at all. I mean, eight marathons in eight days, okay. Yeah, use the yeah. word... It's- <laughs> you find that you use the word just a lot, I find. You know, you'll you'll say, I'm just doing the 50K version or something like that. And yeah. which in our circle is a completely understandable statement. But then of course you get the the push pushback, or maybe not the pushback, but that that comment from from non-runners or non-ultras who go, Oh, ju-, as if you're being, you know, you're playing it down Humble flippantly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and it's really not. It's because you know people that are going out there and doing Moab or backyard ultras and all this stuff and 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 so it it really is hum- it's humility but it comes across as fake and and that's i think that draws people together into a tighter bond a group because we all know where we are within things and and the other th- the challenges that people are doing that are so great and yet within our own cycles we all kind of know where we are um and i think that draws the community in together closer yeah yeah do you I think mean- do- I was going to say, do you think, um, Ian, that the sort of perception of what constitutes extreme endurance has changed in the mind of non-runners and the general public as well? And has it, if so, has it changed as dramatically? Or do you think, you know, a marathon for a non-runner is still a kind of crowning achievement of a lifetime? Um, well, I think it definitely has changed. And if you think about London Marathon and the amount of people who used to and still do uh, raise money from for charity through London Marathon, and and if I think back ten years ago when somebody would say, "Hey, I'm lo- running London Marathon. Will you sponsor me?" People used to go, "Wow, you're running a marathon." Whereas if you go and ask people to sponsor you for London Marathon now, they go, "Okay, yeah, I mean, like everybody's doing that." <laughs> so. <laughs> So it, it, certainly a, a marathon is far more known about, less uh, 
less revered. Uh, I think a lot more people do marathons now. Um, and I think, as you say, social media, newspapers, um, magazines have all latched on to endurance and crazy endurance. Um, and, and actually crazy endurance is unique in that people read those articles and can't understand it and get flabbergasted by it. So, so it's good media. Mm. You know, if you think about somebody running across America in 3,100 miles or somebody doing uh, a backyard ultra and running for three days or four days with no sleep and, and covering 200 and something miles, then, then they go, what, really? What? And, and when did they sleep? Well, they didn't sleep. Yeah. What, what do you mean they didn't sleep? So then, you know, it, it becomes um, it, it becomes intriguing because it becomes more known about. Uh, but I think the general public probably still don't understand it and don't really grasp what what it is we're talking about. It's just this very weird and and wonderful thing that they like to read about, but have no way wanting to do it would not even contemplate it they just they it's just like watching a movie you know it, it yeah. it's almost not real yeah or any any other extreme sport i guess you know whatever that might be it's sort of like wow i'm, I'm amazed that that thing happens don't really understand how it happens have no inclination to do it myself kind of thing yeah yeah i i think the thing is is with with ultra running um is that if you if you take another sport, let's say um, Danny McCaskill on a bike, okay? You, you watch that guy and you just think, how on earth can you do those tricks? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're astounded by his skill level. You're astounded by his bravery and his courage. But also, it's, it's beautiful to watch and very, very entertaining. Ultra running is actually not normally that entertaining, is it? You know, <laughs> you know, we we who are really really interested might tune into the backyard ultra when it's been going for about three and a half days, so that you can see the carnage. But you, <laughs> I don't want to sit there and watch every single hour and see what's happening. It's actually not that entertaining. I think the the end result is fascinating and entertaining, but I, I'm not the one person who's going to sit there and watch 24 hours every day until it finishes. Um, and I think now what we're seeing in the sport is how companies and brands and races are beginning to to bring the concept of live live entertainment in running. So UTMB started it. And, and just because of the size and the budget, they've 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 managed to bring something that is entertaining that you can dip in and di- dip out of, but it, it's it's watchable. Yeah. Um, Golden Trail series are, have been doing it, and the technology is changing all the time. You know, if you think about how GoPros have developed and how mobile phones have developed and how Steadicams and gimbals are now really, really cheap and inexpensive. You can have 10 GoPros and 10 Steadicams and 10 people running in a race and provide some sort of content that is worth watching. Whereas before, it, it just it was rubbish and yeah. nobody wanted to watch it. It wasn't entertaining. Uh, and so that is going to be the future of the sport. And will it get televised? 
I think eventually maybe one or two races that that are big enough with a big enough budget might t- might find television traction. But but I think it's really for the geeks like us who want to watch a sport, watch UTMB and watch the action as it happens and tune in and tune out and and see it. It's um, definitely going to be Eurosport rather than Sky Sports, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But it's interesting, I, I, isn't it? Because I mean, television isn't what it used to be anyway, is it? Um, no. I mean, when you've got podcasts and YouTube channels that have way more daily, weekly views than even primetime TV shows, you have to ask, is televisation of utmb or whatever really going to be the exactly you know where where it should aim for or should it just be aiming for a certain number of viewers through whatever medium it's broadcast you know like youtube yeah and and and, you know they 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 do a live feed on youtube and Mm. they do recap highlights so that you can tune in and just watch a summary And, and part of the reason for that is that i think in general our attention spans are so much shorter now yeah um we're conditioned we're, to we're, it, aren't we? Um, yeah, you know, through we're the too distracted. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're too distracted. We're, we are, you know, uh, if I'm involved in a race and there's a video film crew and, you know, let's say it's a race that takes six hours, seven hours, eight hours, the aim or the the target will, to produ- will be to produce a three to five minute video because anything else, yeah. people get bored. And yeah. this is a race that takes six or seven hours, so you you can see how um, ha- how the need to compress and just create highlights that still tells the story in a three to five minute window. Um, so it, it you know, and, and that's what fascinates me about podcasting, and for what's fa- fascinates me about my podcast is that people still have the opportunity or want to listen to it, and and I'm I'm absolutely convinced it's because. They can say, how long is my podcast? Okay, my run is three <laughs> hours, 33 minutes. It's, and, the, it's the gauge through which yeah. to base the long run. If, you, if, if you're still talking when that run finishes, you need to do a few laps around the block, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. But I, I think you're right. It's, it's strange, isn't it? We are now at this point where entertainment either needs to be really quick and to the point and like you say, sort of three minutes, a nugget, like a trailer. Um, and that goes for sort of news pieces. It goes for, you know, tweets, blog posts, um, maybe not podcasts, but, you know, videos. Or it needs to be the total opposite at the end. I mean, you only need to look at like Joe Rogan's podcast, which like you is three to four hours with one guest. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most downloaded podcasts on the planet. Um, long, long form conversations. And... I think almost one of them is the sort of antidote to the other, where this sort of like bite-sized um, consumption has very little nuance to it, and it's just straight to the point, smack you in the face. There you go. That's that, that's what you want. That's what you wanted. That's what you got. Yeah. The long-form conversation then allows you to delve much more deeper into these things and actually, you know, get personalities through and really kind of understand someone's viewpoint and, you know, without sort of taking just nuggets, little text snippets or, or, or sound bites and, and compressing it into that format. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that's always struck me with the Talk Ultra interviews, Ian, is, is your depth of knowledge of the individuals that you're interviewing has always been very 
very, very good. You've always got a good depth of knowledge when you're talking about it. There's lots of points that come up where you can revert back to previous meetings and races. And, and it's almost, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's very detailed in, in how you know their previous histories. And, and then, of course, you're talking about um, a, almost in a race report format quite a lot of the time about how the race has just gone. And so it always feels like you're chatting to a pal and, and yeah. uh, uh, with your exposure, so you spend in normal times, let's say you're spending sort of 10, 11 months traveling the world, traveling to all the, the biggest, most impressive um, ultras around the planet in terms of uh, race fields and scenery. And, and then you're hanging out with these guys and then you're perching yourself on the top of a, a, a rocky outcrop and, and taking their pictures as they come back. So it really kind of you're in a, a perfect position to be in that circle and chat to these people. And that really comes across. And how do you, how do you remember everyone? Uh, it's, it's pretty easy to be honest. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't have to think about how I remember. They are, anybody. So they are genuinely uh, friends as you're going through this journey with yeah, people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the thing is, is that, that I always decided very, very early on, um, and, and 2012 was a key moment in that I went to La Palma for Transvulcania and the ISF, the International Skyrunning Federation was, was having a very, very big moment in the sport. And we had a week in La Palma where we had all the world's best athletes and they were running the race. And then, then from that race, we went straight to Spain and they ran Zagama. So we were all with each other for two weeks in the same hotel, having dinner together. And, and I think back now how key that, that moment was because it was Killian, Emily, Anton Krupitschka, Anna, Anna Frost, Marco de Gasperi, um, um, uh, a, a, a massive American contingent, Max King. Um, I mean, it was everybody that was anybody mm. in mountain running. The dream the team. Time. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the dream team. And I look back at some of the snaps and the photos I've got then, and I was, it's like, wow, really? Was that, was that real? It must have been interesting walking out of the hotel each morning, kind of just looking for who was warming up and getting ready to go for a run. And yeah. Well, the thing was, is we, you know, the, the, my, my key always was, is never be a fanboy. Mm. The moment that you're a fanboy, that is somebody to avoid. They, they don't want you to treat them in any other way than a normal human being. And that was always my key is I would walk past, um, I don't once let's say Anton Kuprichka and I'd walk past him. I go morning, Anton. And he'd go, hi. And that would be it. Whereas other people would go morning, Anton, and then just loiter and wait for an autograph or a photograph. Well, no, they don't want that. No. So, so as the moment that you treat them as just another person that endears you to them in the sense that you're not somebody to be avoided. And, and then, like on pretty much all these races that I go to, I'm I'm there before and afterwards, and they'll say, "Hey, we're going out for a run in the morning. Do you want to come?" And you go, "Well, yeah. I mean, I'll come as long as I can keep up." And even them, when the, <laughs> when they're going at a nice, easy pace to warm up, you're you know you're off the back, breathing <laughs> like a traction engine, blowing out your ass. With them. <laughs> so so I think the thing is 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 it's never really been. 
a problem to connect. Um, it's never been a problem to remember their names because it, it's always felt every time I go to a race, it's just like meeting a bunch of mates mm. and, and that's pretty much it. So it's, we've kind of chatted about how you've, you've traveled the world with it all. I'm going to ask you for your kind of standout races, which ones do you enjoy the most? Which ones would you go back to? Um, so, so there's there's always the dilemma of at the end of the day, I make a living being a photographer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I will go to the races that that want me and will book me for my job because I need to make a living. Yeah. Uh, but if I can choose races um, like Marathon des Sables, I will always want to go back to Marathon des Sables. Um, I've been there eight times now, I think. And even though it's the desert and, it, you know, it, a lot of people say, yeah, but it's all the same. It's not. And, and it's a, re- a very, very unique environment. And I love being in the desert. I love being in Morocco. There's a, a, a mountain race called Trofeo Kima, which is one of the pinnacle sky running races. It only happens every two years. And it's for a very limited number of people. Um and it's just, you know, it's just a brutal race. It's got Via Ferrata. It's got really technical ridges. It's got snow, ice. Um, if you fall, there's a good chance that you can die. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that type of extreme race is where you can get some of the best photos. Mm. Um, you know, Killian's race in, in Norway, uh, Tromsø. Uh, has a, a ridge called the Hamperrocken, uh, and you know that's really exposed, really, really technical. And of course, uh, Hillary Allen. I was going to say, is that where Hillary Allen fell? Yeah, Hillary Allen fell directly in front. Of yeah. Um, and and so races that are extreme really, really appeal to me um, from from a photographic point of view, from a technical point of view, uh, just from a challenging point of view. Um, so are there are there many of these how many of these races have you run that you photographed what's the sort of ratio there are there, are there some that you're like damn it I keep on paying me to photograph this thing but i want to actually just enter and run yeah well the irony is like for the i stopped racing in 2012 mm. so for the last 10 years apart from three weeks ago i raced again that that I was saw. the first time <laughs> that was the first time in 10 years and um on which race was this i don't it I was limoni in in italy which is a sky running race um so it's a race that i've worked on like six times and because of covid the date kept getting changed and and i wasn't working on it this year and at the very very last minute my girlfriend and myself decided to go to to limoni for a holiday to go running in the mountains um and then the race got put back a week and I said, oh, wow, uh, we're going to be there for the race. And they, and, and so my girlfriend said, you should see if you can work on it. And I said, no, nah, sod that. Let's, <laughs> let's run it. And she said, really? She says, you want to run the race? I said, look, I, I know the route. I've run the race route before. It would be really, really good fun to put a bib on and just go out and, and, and do it. And so I did. And there was no pressure. You know, for the first time in wearing a bib, I stood on the start line. There was no nerves, nothing. It was just, I'm going to go out and I'm going to have a blast today. And I did. And it was it was great. 
it sort of made me think I might start racing again, but I'm not. <laughs> I haven't got time. The problem is, is when you work on so many races, you you just can't you just can't run them. Well, like you yeah, say, I've you once... top and tail it with a week either end. It's how do you feel yeah. then? Then yeah, yeah, it's it's just not possible. I mean, I, I've never run Marathon de Sable, and 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 it's a race that I you know I really really have always wanted to run because I I love fast packing. I love I love the process of carrying what I need and moving a distance and mm. then sleeping. And I do a lot of that in my personal time. So a lot of my adventures, whether they're in Nepal or Norway or wherever, are mini adventures. And 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 that has always appealed to me more in the last 10 years than than actually putting on a bib, but but going doing my own thing. Um and typically with my calendar, December was always a, a a quiet month, an empty month. And I used to try and keep it free. So for many, many years, apart from the the COVID years, I would go away in December pretty much for three weeks or a month and, and do an adventure. Um, very often in Nepal, sometimes in La Palma. Um, and, and that gave me the fix that I needed instead of putting on a bib. How much planning do you put into like a multi-day adventure run like that? Do you work out exactly where you're going to go from and to and camp and everything? Or do you, is there a little bit of kind of make it up as you go along? Um, There's combinations of, so, so if, if I'm going to be completely self-sufficient, there are things that you, that you have to be wary of. So access to water is, is a key thing. So I will, I will find out, the route that I'm going to run and find out, do I have streams or rivers that I can get water from? Um, uh, that's the primary one. So, I mean, like here in Norway, you know, this time of year, if I'm doing anything multi-adventured, it, it can be an expedition because uh, the temperatures start to drop hmm. to minus 20, minus 30. So you've got to be really, really well prepared. Uh, and, you know, I've written a lot of articles and talked a lot about about safety in the mountains. And, and you know, I'm a real stickler for mandatory kit. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into, into a debate about races and what they should have as mandatory kit, but I I do think that, that particularly after the China incident and a couple of other things that have happened recently, if everybody has to carry a minimum amount of equipment to keep them safe, if you're all carrying it, it's all the same weight roughly. And I think it's really important. Um, but if, 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 if I've gone to Nepal, then I do quite a lot of research. So... You know, I would typically go from tea house to tea house in Nepal, um, but you've also got to keep a track of the weather and have contingency plans um, and route options. You know, I, I did the high passes uh, in 2018, 2019, and it snowed heavily. And and luckily, I'd planned ahead in that I was carrying an ice axe and crampons. And, and if I hadn't, I'd have been screwed because i wouldn't have got across some of the passes so it's that type of preparation that you that i really like as well you know that's that's mm. what makes the adventure worthwhile for me yeah. it's a very interesting part of killian's last book where i think he took uh, emily climbing um after she'd recently Unch- done an ultra and he re- yeah that's it and he realized he'd he realized he'd fucked up big time because she was going so slowly because she was fatigued and he hadn't factored that in and, and he kind of had that moment of my reputation is that I'm a mountain person. 
And here I am stuck on this, you know, if I had a hundred feet of rope, we could be out of this, but I haven't. And so now I've got to put my, um, my reputation on the line as it were, and call up search and rescue and say, come and get me. Cause the alternative is I oh, brass yeah. it out and we die. Yeah. This, this is in Chamonix, not on Choi. Sorry. Yes, it was. Um, yeah, and, it was in um, Chamonix. He had to call out the, the mountain rescue and they came and rescued them. And he got, he caught hell for it. But he said, hey, I learned from it. And if I hadn't caught hell, we'd have died. So, you know, it's a small price. But yeah, um, yeah so even the best kind of do get caught out from time to time. Yeah, and and the, and the reason for that, so I actually in, interviewed Emily about that. And and we had a very sort of frank discussion about safety. And, and the sky running sport, which is what I've heavily been heavily involved in has this tag line fast and light and Killian is a real exponent of fast and light he wants to carry the minimum amount of equipment and the lightest amount of equipment so that he can go fast and and the thing is is that it's all well and good providing that you can go fast Mm -hmm. the thing that you have to think about is if I fall and break my leg what happens then yeah. And that's that's what you I You don't go fast. <laughs> no. And that's that's what I want to try and reiterate to people is that if you take a windproof instead of a down jacket, if if it's minus two and you're running and and you're nice and warm because you're generating heat, but then you fall and you've got to sit and wait and all you've got is a windproof, you then you, I'm sorry, but you're in serious, serious trouble. Mm-hmm. And and I mean I mean even a down jacket might not help, but the thing is is you have to think about where am I going, when am I going, what happens if, and well it's as simple know. as you know some of the races that we do where they specify a minimum kit to carry, it can be down to the, the lumens on on the backup head torch, and people will get the shittiest cheapest head torch as their backup, assuming that it's it's never the mains never go wrong, and then you're left with this pinprick of light in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and that's that, the basic level. So, you know, when we're getting into, like, I'm doing CCC next year and going through their kit list of, of the three different variations within that. And you look through yep. it all and you go, Christ, I need a backpack that's going to be able to carry all of that if I need to. Yep. Because, I mean, I think that's a really sensible way of doing it. They've got these, you know, hot conditions, cold conditions and, and normal yep. conditions. And that's a really nice way of doing it so that you're not carrying excess and you're not under. Um, and I think a lot of races would, would do well to kind of copy that model. Um, oh, I, I, it just sure. covers the basis, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, and the thing is, is that the Americans have a completely different attitude is that they, they very rarely, um, uh, ask for, for compulsory equipment. They say it's down to the runner. But my argument has always been is that, and no disrespect to any runner out there, but but runners can be a little bit stupid when it comes to what they need <laughs> in that they will always err on the side of nothing instead of carrying something. And let's face it, running free with no weight is, is fantastic. But <laughs> I've been in too many situations that if I'd not had my pack with the stuff in there that I really, really needed, I'd have probably not be here now. Um, and, and I think once you've been in that situation, you, you will always be a Boy Scout after that in, in that you will have an extra base layer. You will have a windproof, a Gore-Tex jacket, 
Gore-Tex yeah. pants, a down jacket, pair of gloves, a hat. <laughs> you know, you'll have everything that you need just in case. I, yeah, I do think to some a lot of people need to get burnt once to realise there's fire there. And because a lot of people, I think you go into a, especially an ultra race, you want to have an optimistic attitude about what's going to occur during that race. And part of that optimism besides, well, you know, I'm not going to feel too tired. I'm not going to get injured. It's, you know, I'm trained well. This is going to go well is also the weather won't go bad. You know, I'm sure there won't be cold bits. Um, I'm obviously not going to fall over and break my leg or fall off a cliff or a mountain. Um, and therefore, you know, because you sort of place that mentality front and center, what follows obviously is, well, I probably won't need that down jacket either because things are going to go really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's easy to, to think that way. And, and, and I suppose in a way you have to have positive thoughts, otherwise you're going to ruin your race. But, but I think I I would have a, a much happier experience knowing that I have the things I need should things go wrong. And and it's not only about yourself, it's about other people on the trail. So, mm. you know, a good example in some of the races I've worked on where I've seen a runner fall and I've been the person who is the to help and well, rescue with them. Hillary, it was you and Killian, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, it was me, Killian and and Martina Valmasoy. And and I climbed down the mountain to, to get to Hillary after calling for a rescue. Um, Can you talk us a, through what happened? Because you, you literally saw it unfold in front of you and she was coming across yeah. the ridge line. Yeah, so I was on the ridge um, taking shots and, and Hillary was, was climbing down the ridge in front of me and she was going to come up the ridge, the, 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 the peak in front of me. Mm. And and I always had a nickname for Hillary called Smiler because she was always smiling and always happy. So as she as she dropped down the mountain, I was talking to her on the other side and I was saying, hey, Smiler, you're looking good. And she was laughing and giggling. And, and I said, when you pop over this peak in front of me, just look straight, look at me straight in the eye because I wanted this photograph of her looking directly at me coming over this, the peak. I don't know where this is going exactly, but it's beginning to sound like it's your fault. <laughs> no, it wasn't my fault. No, it definitely wasn't my fault. And um, so so she, w- she was laughing on the other side, and then all I heard was that, you know, that sound of two rocks rubbing against each other and then one of them moving, and then she screamed. And and I, I don't know why I did it, but I looked, you know, my instant, I, I guess you just think, what the hell? Mm. And I looked to see her just ragdoll down oh, the mountain. No. And she she hit, oh, I don't know, four or five times and dropped about 30 meters directly below me into the snow oh. and then was just lying, not moving. And yeah, it still haunts me thinking about it because I, I just thought she was dead. And there was a guy, a Spanish guy called Manu, who actually lives in Norway. He started to run down to her and I, got, I, I started to phone the emergency services and I was talking to the helicopter and giving him the grid reference. And then I was speaking to Manu, who was down with Hillary, and I was asking, is there a pulse? And he says, yes, there is. So I was relaying that back to the helicopter. And then once the helicopter had been um, sent out, I then climbed down to with Manu. But the thing was, she was on like um, a, a mountainside that was probably like 40, 50 degree gradient. 
and and she she had the risk of potentially sliding down more mm. so i climbed underneath her and i put my arms underneath her body to hold her but i it was really really difficult because i was holding her body weight but i was trying to not slide down the mountain myself and of course we didn't know if she'd broken her back broken her neck she was lacerated from hitting the rocks and she was in you know just extreme pain then killian got to us and and that's where i noticed the difference with killian is that that killian has been in these extreme environments a, a lot more than than i have he he's experienced death before mm-hmm. and he's experienced um the reality of extreme environments and that if you do this you can die and and he seems very at peace with that thought process where i wasn't (laughs) i was okay i know this is a risky race i know this is dangerous but shit this is not meant to happen yeah it's not part of the plan yeah exactly and that was the difference is is that i wasn't panicking but i was like this is not good whereas killian was much more okay that's fine you know we'll do this then the helicopter came helicopter couldn't land so then it had to land somewhere else and then they put the basket underneath the helicopter then they flew into us we had to inflate a cot put hillary in the cot and then she got lifted off with um uh with a medic uh and and i mean gladly uh it took a while for her to recover. And actually just this last weekend, she won mute uh, Madeira ultra trail. So it's been a long process for her and and the physical and mental scars were were a lot to get over. And I, and I have to admit that I found the mental scars personally quite hard. Mm. Um, When I left that Ridge, I was going a lot slower than when I went out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and now when I'm on ridges, I I have definitely a little bit more of a what if scenario. You know, well, the, I, there I, was Adam Campbell, wasn't there, a few years ago? Um, yeah, and he was on a training run. Um, I don't know if we've spoken about this before on the podcast, but he he uh, pulled on a rock instead of pushing down. He thinks, and the rock gave, and he went backwards. He thought the last sight he was going to see was the world upside down. It was all inverted and, and he hit the ground. And he had two experienced runners with him who immobilized him or kept him immobilized. Uh, and, and one of them ran to the top and called for help on his mobile phone. And, and very luckily, there was a search and rescue helicopter in the very next valley that flew in. And if it hadn't have been for that, he'd have been toast. He wouldn't have been here. And, and so he, I think he was probably in the top three trail runners trail runners in America at the time he was at the top of his game he was and it still went wrong so there's no you know chances there isn't it yeah i mean there, there is no guarantees that, mm. that and, and the more you push the envelope the the more you increase the chance of of something happening so um it, it's not complacency it's just it it it's just that that if you do anything enough you increase the risk and and it, that's anything that is crossing the road, um, climbing a mountain, um, running. Mm. You know, if you cross a road twenty times a day, you're you're far more at risk of getting knocked over than somebody who crosses the road once a day. It 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 just it just happens. Um, well, yeah, and, and especially th- when you add in, you know, the intensity of the activity, yeah. the you know, you're t- 
tiredness, like mental fatigue. Um, and I mean, you know, as you just described the fact that you're, you're, you're running on a surface that has makes no guarantees of its stability, you know, any give, you know, you can tend to be able to identify them up to a point, but you know, any rock could slip or crack or Mm. break really. And that might cause your footing to slip and then off you go. And of course, if you're at, you know, in a dangerous part of the race, like on top of a peak, um, that, that can put you in a lot of bother. And, and going back to the kit, you know, sometimes that kit, like you say, isn't, isn't there for you. You might be able to give those extra layers to somebody who's laying in the snow, waiting for a helicopter to come in. And, and that was exactly my point is that, that the mandatory kit is when I'm working on a race, I have exactly the same kit as all the runners, if not a little bit more. Mm. Um, well, you're in the same I environment, have, aren't you? Yeah. And, and I have to stand around very often with a camera waiting. So I, it, it can be colder. Uh, but, but equally, if I help somebody, I also have to stand and wait with that person. And and so uh, I need to be warm, and I may need to help that person retain warmth. So I I I will carry typically um, a, a much more substantial bivy bag with me, just in case, which is like a more like a tent, but but it's like a sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. And and because the runners won't carry that because that would be too big and too heavy. Whereas I'm happy to carry it just in case it's needed, whether that's needed for me or needed for somebody else. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to respect the environment that you're playing in. Uh, and the moment that you don't respect it, somewhere down the line, you could end up in a in a really messy situation. So kind of with, with your exposure to the running fraternity, have you... Have you ever been able to back the winners? Have you ever spotted people coming through when you've just looked at them and thought they're on their yeah. way? Their trajectory is upwards. That person is going to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of part of what I've done over the years is is helped some teams pick who the new signings would be, and and you know, you you see somebody early on, and you you look at them and you think, mm, wow, they're going to be good, and and you know. Team managers then say, have you seen anybody that, that's worth looking at? And you say, well, such a body's looking good and such a body's looking good. And I was going to uh, say, because your anyway. position as a photographer is quite unique. You're out on the course in the middle of nowhere watching people move naturally, you know, until they see you. And then we all do that grimace face when we see the photographer and put it. And, um, but yeah, until that moment, they're moving more naturally. And so you're in a prime spot to be a, a kind of a, a scout almost. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think you you just get to see the runners in their natural environment, and you see where the strengths and weaknesses are, and uh, and it's never really difficult to predict Killian winning something. <laughs> <laughs> so, because your neighbours almost now, I guess, well, you're in the same country anyway. Yeah, he he is um, what a six hour drive from me. <laughs> yeah. It's a long old country, is Norway, isn't it? Though that's the thing. Uh, Norway's a very very long country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I when I've gone gone up in that area because so, I've I've gone there to to run myself and 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 do photos. Uh, um, I've met Killian a couple of times, um, but we've not. I've not had the opportunity to get out with him on his home trails. That was going to be my question. It, it, it <laughs> would it would be a 
it would be a little bit too slow for him <laughs> trying to drag me along. <laughs> Did you hear the story? Uh, I think it was Emily who, who said it about Killian time. I know it's kind of a famous thing. And, and he sent some uh, sent some friends out for a run and they said, where can we go for, for three or four hours? And he went, oh, do this peak, this peak, this. And they came back sort of eight hours later, completely bedraggled. Wait, wait. He did. He did exactly the same for me. <laughs> exactly the same. So the first time I went, I went to Andalsnes, which is the area that he lives in. So you have the Romsdal Mountains, and I'd gone out for a run that morning, but I'd pinged him a WhatsApp and I said, "Hey, I'm I'm in your home. Where do you recommend?" And then when I got back from the run, he he'd replied and he said, "Well, pop over to the house and we'll have a look at a map." So I went over and he, he got the map out and Emily was there and he was saying, so tomorrow you could go and do this and go up there and go around there and come down here. And Emily said, Gillian, it's Ian that you're talking to. I said, I said, yeah. I said, is it technical, Killian? He says a little bit. I said, okay, if you're saying it's a little bit technical, I said, that means it's really, really technical. And I said, how long does that take? Uh, you know, three, four, Emily, seven, eight. <laughs> I'm going, okay. So, so it certainly soon became apparent was that, that it was pointless asking Killian for advice because I couldn't really do anything that, that he would do in the timescale that he was talking about. Bless. <laughs> divide the divide the time and the technical difficulty by two, kind of thing. Oh, um, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, makes sense. And the funny thing is, is we'd done this ridge. We'd ran along this ridge, and when we got to the very end of the ridge, it was it was a very obvious end because there was a summit, a, a peak, a summit, and then just a sheer drop, and then this amazing ridge. And I looked at the ridge and it was all jagged and knife edged and really, really beautiful. And I, I'm I'm looking at this ridge and I looked at my girlfriend and I said, you know what? I said, I bet Killian's been across that. <laughs> and then when when I saw him, I said, Oh, I ran along Romsdal Segen. He says, Yeah, he says, it's really, really cool when you get to the end and you can and I went, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd done that. And he says, Yeah. And he says, then you can go up the lion's head and go. And I said, Okay. I'm this out. is like great. Yeah, because I'd looked at it and I thought, how could you possibly cover that? But yeah, he, he his skill level is off the scale. Yeah. Is he running routes that no one's run before? Is he literally like sort of pathfinding new stuff or is it all trails that have been passed by other lunatics? Uh, well, I mean, the thing, the thing is, is that a lot of the stuff that he's doing, there are no trails. Um, you know, he, 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 he combines running with alpinism. So climbing and running um so pure runners would not venture in some of the areas that he goes to you need uh climbing skills as well um and i'm i'm happy in in you know some scrambly technical type type terrain but he takes it to the next level so he has definitely pioneered some some routes out out in Norway that haven't been done before by linking peaks up um, that the one peak in itself would be enough for most people. And then he links it to another peak and then another peak and then another peak. Um, he did one last year um, in, um, in Jotunheimen, which is a beautiful, beautiful mountain range. And he did this whole circular loop. And I, I have a friend who lives in Jotunheimen who's a climber. And she just said to me, what he did was completely and utterly off the scale. Is that the one he did in 24 hours? 
yeah, it was it was it was a link up of all yeah. the peaks. Um and you know, conditions were tough. There was lots of snow, lots of ice, and he was solo with minimal amounts of kit. And yeah, I mean, even the climbers were looking at it and going, This is just off the scales, you know. That off the scale for them, they just thought it was absolutely crazy that somebody would even contemplate this. But 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 that's the that's the difference with Killian is is he has the skill of a really good climber, but the speed of Killian. Mm. And and it's very very few people in the world that have that combination of elements. You, you know, somebody might be good at one thing or, or or the other, but he is good at everything. He's even a bloody good photographer. It's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we've all got mates like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, he yeah. finds himself in quite photogenic places, I suppose. That helps. Oh, yeah. 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 He's, he's not shortage of photogenic places. Uh, um, Ian, that's been fantastic. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. I, was, I, I messaged Tris early, like he said, and I was, I was, I was, I was a bit nervous because I've listened to you for so long. Uh, um, and it's, it's been fantastic and, and very generous of you to give up your time to come on the show. Um, oh, no we'll pop up all the links to your feed. Your photography Instagram is, is worth the price of admission alone. Um, <laughs> always great to see inspiration and, and also, um, your book running beyond again, I'll put up a link to that, which is somewhere to look for inspiration. If you, if you want to use your ultra running for travels, uh, there's some images in there and some descriptions of the races. It needs an update, by the way, you need to put more in another one. Yeah. You, you, it, it, I know it was a labor of love. It takes a fair amount of time to put a book like that together. And, and um, you know, the thing is, is that the races that are in that book, uh, since the book has finished, I've, I've gone back to, to most of those races again. So, uh, you know, finding 36 or 40 new races to make another book and being able to go to them and yeah, get the content is is actually really, really, really difficult. Um, I've had ideas for maybe a, a, a different angle, a different way of doing it, but yeah. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it, so it would be appreciated. Any any format, if it's a Kindle it, update, it would be good. It, it, it's actually been called a, a great book for divorce. <laughs> 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 it's good. I, I've, I've, I encountered it at a running cafe in T uh, Tavistock, and um, we were flicking through, and it's sort of like a travel agent's guide for the ultra runner. Um, yeah. You kind of flick through, and you go, "Oh, I'd like to go there, please. How much is that going to cost me? And what, what sort of qualification points do I need to get?" In? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's yeah. actually <laughs> how my wife approaches vacations. She knows if she wants to go somewhere. She finds a race and, and puts in, it's like Inception. She puts it in front of me and says, there's a race here. And oh, oh, yeah, that's great. Would you not mind me running it? No, no, no. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, and that's, I think that's just, that's just good planning, isn't yeah. it? I mean, if, if you can keep everybody happy, exactly. I mean, uh, I, I think that's the perfect way to do things is that if, if you want to do a race, and you need to keep everybody else happy, then then make it a holiday, and you get your fix doing the the thing that you yeah. want to do, and the family gets their fix doing the the, the holiday. It's a thing. good so, way. We did a, we did Oman a couple of years ago, and then went off to a yoga retreat in India, which is the nicest way to recover from a an ultra I've ever done, um, yeah. which is phenomenal. But um, I am worried now that you described it as a divorce book because she bought it for me. So. <laughs> 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 what no, tell you? <laughs> Brilliant. I know, I'm kind of worried now. 
Uh, right. Thank you good, so good. much. Let's, and, let's um, end it on that. An absolute on pleasure. That. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Trail and Error podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to like, subscribe, and most important of all, share it with your friends and your family. Also, if you have any guest suggestions or suggestions for features that you would like to see on the Trail and Error podcast, please get in touch with us via our social media channels at trail underscore and underscore error underscore UK. It makes more sense when it's written down, I promise you. Oh, and we're on Facebook too. See you next time. Thanks for listening.